So, yeah. Um, <laughs> witty banter, witty banter, witty banter. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. We gather around the table and discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And I am so glad you both uh, joined me from your own remote locations. I am still Dalton Stewart. Well, I thought you two were recording from the zone. I, I heard telephones work there, so I just assumed that's what was going I've, on. I've always been in the zone. I've never <laughs> left. Yeah, I was about to say, I've, I've been in the zone since 2018. Yeah, it checks out. Uh, yes, indeed. If you don't know already, if you haven't read the label and don't understand the joke from our banter, we are looking at the Andre Tarkovsky 1979 sci-fi extravaganza stalker today. For it is the month O'Dustin, in which uh, the programming is generally around things that I like, because I turned 40. And apparently that's the only commiseration you get for getting nearer to the grave. And, You're welcome. Uh, thus, and, there, and, I, and I thank you for that commiseration. <laughs> uh, and as we commiserate together my impending death, Stalker seems to be a great choice for that. <laughs> yeah, tr- truly, as, as Gremlins 2 was a great way to close out a marathon about entering one's 30s, uh, Stalker certainly seems to be the perfect film <laughs> for entering one's 40s. <laughs> Yeah, it's entirely appropriate on every level. So uh, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, let me tell you a few things about this show. It is not a review show. However, it is an analysis show. And that means spoilers are part of what we end up doing in the show. However, we're aware of the need of a listener who wants to listen to a good film podcast and think about analysis and whatnot, who might sometimes run into a movie they haven't seen and they're not quite sure whether or not they want to go ahead and see it first and get spo- or not get spoiled or spoiled or not. So this is what we do to sort of help you make that decision. We start off with the synopsis, which is spoiler-free. We move on to a uh, thumbs-up, thumbs-down set of reviews, which is very spoiler-like, like the the reviews you might read in a newspaper or online before deciding whether or not to go to a movie. Then we play a little mental exercise in which we uh, construct a syllabus around this movie, which would involve maybe mild spoilers of the movie, but very mild on the movie, and maybe some spoilers of some movies that are in its orbit. Then, finally, we get down to business, and that's when all spoiler bets are off. And at that point, you're still like, I'm good with this. I want to keep listening. Keep on listening, dear listener, because uh, you'll hear great things about the movie, and uh, you'll also hear the end of it. But I don't think it'll detract from the experience of having watched the movie. So there you go. That's all I have to say about that. Arthur. Yes. Do you have a synopsis? Why, certainly I do. Who'd have thunk? Thank you, buddy. A stalker leads a writer and professor into the zone, a mysterious, perilous area where reality doesn't play by the rules. At the heart of the zone is a room said to fulfill the deepest desires of those who make the journey. Yes, indeed. So, there you go. That is Stalker. Uh, I am so glad I got to pick one of my, you know, weirdo movies, you know, in this little, the way Arthur programmed my pickings uh, for this, because this, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, so... I'm ex- I'm very very excited to hear your guys' thoughts. I'm going to go to you first, actually, Arthur. What do you say in terms of thumbs up, thumbs down review? Me, um, yeah. So this is a movie. I think obviously, I think the conversation surrounding Annihilation, what two years ago, really put this movie, I think, back into a spotlight among uh, film Twitter. And so it's one I'd been hoping to get around to and catch up with. And obviously it's been on Criterion for a long time. Um, but that two hour and 45 minute runtime is not always feasible and kind of 
is a bit off-putting. Um, and so I was really thankful to have this opportunity to watch this movie. And, and I really, really appreciate it's a hard movie to be like, yeah, I love that movie. Or, you know, I, I think this is a movie that's all about the emotional experience and journey um, because of its style, because of its nature. It's hard to define, you know, this is, you know, it's not a fun movie and it's not an exciting. Uh, I think it is thrilling in its way and, and exciting, I guess, in some ways, um, very suspenseful in some ways. Uh, but this is a movie that is just gorgeous from beginning to end. And, and, uh, he opens it, Tarkovsky does, with this, you know, heavily sepia-toned uh, prologue, preamble, um, as our uh, stalker, writer, and professor all kind of get together, and we are introduced to these characters before they go to the zone. And then we get that transcendent uh, Wizard of Oz moment when they reach the zone, and everything shifts into color, and it's gorgeous, and it's got this very misty, dreamlike, ethereal quality to it. And to follow these men on this journey, um, it's a hard, I mean, it's a sleepy movie. I think people will tell you that it's sleepy. I think even Tarkovsky would have said it's boring and dull. Uh, that was part of the goal was to attain that kind of boring uh, momentum uh, to juxtapose those ideas. Uh, so that when the hits do hit, they hit hard. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating approach um, because I think a lot of people, you know, who aren't into this type of thing would watch this movie and say about half of this isn't needed or necessary because the action is not really until that last hour. Um, and I think Tarkovsky does a great job of letting that all simmer very, very, very slowly and gently doing the whole boiled frog thing. Um because once you're in it and it starts to reveal some of itself to you in the zone, uh, I, I think it does land very well. Um, but this is a gorgeous movie. It's beautifully shot. Um, it has this very appropriate soundtrack and score that's subtle uh, when it needs to be subtle. And uh, it reinforces, I think, the film as it you know unwinds. Um, all these kind of slow traipses and tossing of stones to anticipate any dangers in the in the upcoming trek i i think that suspense works really well when they go into the sand room dunes thing um that's a really cool sequence and i think that works really well um but yeah i i watched this in two parts because you know the first time the first night i watched it my eyes were just getting heavy and that's not to the fault of the film i i you know it's a very sleepy film and uh i, I anticipated that and i tried to keep my phone away from me so i could focus on it and in doing that, I noticed, you know, this is a Russian film, and I noticed myself not really paying attention to the subtitles or very captivated by what was going on on screen. And I was able to kind of, you know, piece together the plot or the relationships in, in moments because it's very terse. You know, the stalker and the writer are kind of at odds throughout the the film. And that kind of is a repetitive motif uh, in, in the, the relationships there. And, and as that kind of unwinds, it's, it's easy to kind of just get caught up in the world that Tarkovsky has created here. Uh, and so the way that all plays out and where it goes, uh, I, I think is really fascinating. And it's hard to kind of get too much into that last hour without being too spoilery, because that's where a lot of the meat is, I think, philosophically and uh, narratively. And so uh, I, I think it's a fascinating film. I really appreciate it. I think it's one that's going to lend itself to rewatches to really wrestle with and really grapple with what's, unfolding and what's being said and what's being uh, wrestled with 
um because uh, i mean thematically it's it's got a lot going on and, and so you know if you kind of can anticipate what this movie is and the 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 pacing of it um i think you'll get a very rewarding experience out of it and so i i'm really appreciative that you picked this one because uh, it was one i wanted to get around to and and i think it's you know fuels a lot of great thought and a great discussion so yeah I, i'm i'm very pro stalker not stalkers but the movie stalker i'm very pro <laughs> i'm glad you clarified that thank you very much for that mr arthur gordon mr dolster what do you got to say do you like the movie starker stalker stalker starker starker stalker and streaker why streaker uh, I have seen the educational film Streaker, but that's neither. This is neither the place or time to talk about that. Uh, I love the film Stalker. Unfortunately, I, hey, it's it's me, Dalton. Time to be a, a real basic uh, film dude. This is a good ass movie, huh? Uh, if Andre Tarkovsky had intentions here to make a boring movie, he failed. Uh, sorry, bro, your movie's too fucking compelling. Uh, I, th- did you guys know that the average shot length in this is eighty-eight seconds? For those of uh, you listening who are not in the know, I think the average Hollywood shot length is like a second and a half right now. Uh, so, you know, do the math. That that's just It's just not a way your brain and your eyes are used to watching movies if you mostly watch films from the last, you know, 30, 40 years or so. Uh, I mean, even in its time, as, as Arthur kind of alluded to, th- this would have been something of an anomaly. And Dustin, I know this is you know one of your favorite films, obviously, so please feel free to jump in with uh, some of that juicy context you know we love, because uh, not to spoil next week's episode, but uh, I-, I did another four and a half some odd hours of homework for the show this week. Uh, so I-, I unfortunately did not get to read up a lot on the production of uh, this film, but I did watch a little bit of uh, the Criterion uh, interviews um, that that uh, are kind of packaged with the film. Arthur mentioned this has been on the Criterion Collection for quite some time, and if you stream it on the Criterion channel, there is a little uh, short doc uh, about the troubled production of this film. But uh, Dustin, when you, you get in here to give us your review, and then obviously when we get into analysis and the syllabus, I do hope uh, you're able to give us uh, some insight there, because I can only imagine. I mean, this this the production design of this film is just such a joy to look at it's damp it's a wet wet movie y'all it is goopy and uh, and 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 foggy as arthur has said i just like putting my eyeballs on this movie there's always these these slow ominous creep-ins like from from jump this movie kind of had me and uh, i'm glad i watched it in multiple chunks Uh, i do think that kind of gave me time to digest the first half of the movie or so um i took a break as arthur said this you know um off air and kind of alluded to in his review this film is kind of uh split into chunks uh, a sepia tone chunk and and a color chunk very wizard of oz style um and and i kind of took a break I would say probably 20 to 30 minutes into the the section of the film that's in color. Um, And it really was nice to get to spend an evening wrestling with this because I think I'll probably be working on this movie for the rest of my life. There's a lot here. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to digest and we'll certainly not be able to cover it all here today. Uh, Not the least of those reasons being because I actually still have about eight minutes left uh, in the film and had to uh, read about the monologue that closes the film out, unfortunately. Um, But I am looking forward to when we uh, start getting into our spoiler discussions. I, listener, am looking forward to be spoiled looking forward to being spoiled uh so 
don't let that uh, you know hold you back from listening to this whole episode if you've never seen Stalker. I do kind of think this is a film um, where where plot is secondary to everything else happening. Um, Arthur mentioned the score already, so I want to go ahead and shout out um, some sound design choices that are just just are really cool stuff. There's some some great work at making uh, characters seem far away from each other uh you know that there's oftentimes one of the three leads will be separated from the other two uh, by a pretty significant physical distance and the sound design kind of does just really clever and cute things to to make that um distance be both auditory as well as visual uh, there's all kinds of fun stuff like that, though. I've, of course, already mentioned these slow push-ins, uh, but there's a, a sequence involving a scary puddle, uh, which I, you know, if you've seen the movie Glass, you're probably laughing to yourself now, but man, does this film have the spookiest puddle I've ever seen. Uh, and, and every moment of Stalker is just full of that kind of stuff. Of Well, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in a movie before. Um, I am glad that I got to Annihilation before I got to this film, honestly, because... Um, I do love Annihilation, and then there's some specificities to Annihilation uh, that I think Stalker is missing. Um, but I don't know. Um, the, the meditative spookiness uh, of Stalker uh, is just kind of full of its own charms, and there's something about the kind of more visceral thrills of Annihilation um, that prepped me for this in a, in a way that just had me on on edge the entire time. And I, I don't know if I would have been quite as unnerved by Stalker had I not already gotten to Annihilation and kind of seen these two films talked about each other so much over the last two years, as, as Arthur mentioned. Um, but, but that very visceral, um, violent horror that we get within Annihilation kind of prepared me for uh, being on edge throughout Stalker and kind of letting its more cerebral uh, scares uh, really land with me. But yeah, I, I felt my skin crawling basically the second I started this film, and I loved every moment of it. And I, I cannot wait to talk about it with the two of you. Alrighty, well thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Of course I like this movie. I picked it. It is like the most me pick of this entire marathon. And uh, so yes, it, it's, it's a movie I'm a big fan of. And uh, obviously, I would be a big fan of uh, this kind of movie if you'd be listening to the show for any length of time at all. It uh, ticks all my boxes. Is it science fiction? Sure. Is it science fiction that doesn't play with genre stuff? Sure. Is it cerebral? Yes. Is it spiritual? Yes. Is it also sort of uh, one of those world-creating kind of movies in which the world is almost as, as interesting as the actual story where you want to play the role-playing game as much as you want to rewatch the movie or think about a sequel? Yes. It's doing... All of those things. Are the performances amazing, surprising, gnarly, and weird? Yes. Are there good choices with the score? Yes. Is the camera work something that you don't expect? Of course it is. And do they play with color? Uh-huh. Yeah. What else do I have to say? I like this movie. It's the kind of movie I like. If you've been listening to the show at all, you know you already knew that before we got started. So that is all I have to say about that. Our prices are generally pro, dear listener. We're going to move on to our next major exercise which is expanding the syllabus. And we're going to expand the syllabus by uh, constructing a college class in which this movie is a primary text. What other movies and or films would you use to teach what themes uh, or what modules or what class even uh, in a university setting using Stalker as sort of the foundational seedling of your ideas? I go to you first, Dalton. 
Well, Dustin, this week I'm going to be taking uh, some notes from uh, both your and Arthur's playbooks. Um, you've both done this thing recently where you've kind of started uh, a theoretical class and, and are expanding the syllabus section uh, one week, and then you'll kind of follow up a few weeks later and say, hey, the section I alluded to, here's that teased out. And I, I've, I've been really enjoying uh, that you both have, have taken to doing that. Um, so I am going to uh, borrow uh, from the two of you, and, and as much as uh, everybody who's ever seen Stalker has ever, ever borrowed from it. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. damn, from the moment you start watching this movie, do you start going, oh, I said, okay, oh, oh. Oh, you start noticing little things that are, are, are truly wonderful. Um, but last week, I, I talked about a class called Honor, Identity, and Higher Loyalty uh, when we were discussing the film Hero. And I hadn't quite hammered down what sort of class it was yet. I had a, you know, a bunch of different films kind of broken up by similarity in, of theme uh, and, and similarity of choices. Uh, but, but I hadn't really hammered down what it was. And I think the more I've thought about it, the more it's probably uh, some sort of social psychology class where we are just going to be using film to explore concepts. But uh, one of the sections in that class I mentioned uh, was the, the war within or the dark other, um, uh, the, the, the dark reflection. Uh, this idea of, you know, what are you really loyal to? When the chips are down uh, and you have to be left alone, uh, what do you actually wrestle with? Um, so in Hero, you know, we have these much more overtly political issues and, and you know, military issues. Uh, and I think here in Stalker, we do get to spend so much time thinking about what moves people, what motivates them, what pulls at them. Uh, obviously, we get a lot of this, like, directly said to camera uh, in the character of the writer. Um, some, some really fun monologues from him and, and watching the evolution of that character throughout the film I, I think is one of stalker's great joys because uh, the stalker himself and the professor are, are both much you know softer spoken characters uh and the writer is kind of the the audience surrogate insofar as that he is just talking about what's happening to everyone at all times so even if you do not uh, find yourself personally identifying with the writer uh and i think the film doesn't really want you to i think it makes him a big uh, jerk for as long as it does for that reason. I think it does kind of want to alienate you from him. But if you can get on the wavelength of that character, where he ends up by the time are our, our intrepid heroes, if you can call them such a thing, um, once they get to the zone, once they have their journey through and out of the zone, you really see this person kind of come to understand what he's ventured into in a way that, you know, both the professor and the stalker seem to understand going in, which is probably why these characters are a little bit more terse throughout. Um, so what are we going to pair with stalker? Because there is, it, it's easy to initially say there's nothing else like it. And yet the longer you think about it, there are a lot of things like it. And we're going to mostly be looking at us uh, film here. Of course, we'll be talking about annihilation, a film that makes some of the subtext of stalker more explicit uh, stalker kind of having this this question about like uh, can you really ever trust that you're a good person can you trust your own motivations and I think Annihilation plays with that in, a, in really incredible ways um, the author of Annihilation came out uh, during the kind of conversation and discourse about these two works to say uh, nope nothing to do with Stalker sorry y'all but I would be very surprised if a filmmaker who's who did that Gilroy was it Gilroy it's one of them right it's not important. Did what? Uh, I, I, it was Gilroy Arthur. Did what? Uh, Annihilation. Garland? Right? 
Oh, Garland. Thank you. Alex Garland. I was thinking of the Gilroy brothers. Uh, yeah, Alex Garland. Thank you. I would be very surprised if he's not gotten around to Stalker, and I think that uh, that does annihilation a lot of favors. Uh, the film adaptation anyway. Well, also, of course, as I mentioned uh, last week when I talked about this class, we'll be looking at Us by Jordan Peele. I will be looking at some select episodes of the TV series Counterpart starring J.K. Simmons. Um, I think both of those shows, again, kind of make this journey into the self that Stalker is playing with explicit by making these other versions of ourselves uh, characters within the story, right? The, the idea of uh, your own id or dark reflection um, at one point, the writer says, uh, you know, he, he, his conscience longs for vegetarianism, but his subconscious wants a juicy steak, right? And I think Counterpart and Us both make those sorts of ideas explicit, uh, you know, characters who have conflicts with each other. And I really love that about them. I think there's a lot to explore there, uh, especially um, some of the class stuff that Stalker touches on um, towards the end of the film. Um, I think uh, Counterpart and Us have a lot of that going on. We'll also look at Blade Runner, of course, speaking of class and dark reflections of the self and what we make and what we desire. Uh, I, I think, you know, we've talked about Blade Runner at length on this show, both in its own episode uh, a couple of years ago uh, and, you know, just on various other episodes. So no, no need to get into it too much here. And, of course, it's 1982. We'll be looking at John Carpenter's The Thing, um, another film that takes these uh, sort of terse conversations within Stalker and makes them much more visceral and violent uh we'll kind of pivot there into some more snowy horror but we'll get more concerned with the human and we'll be looking at uh 2020 release um the wolf of snow hollow um a follow-up to the film thunder road by oh that writer director and star of the film and see this is why uh it's it's fun to forget somebody's name when they have uh, you Jim know, Cummings? so many credits on a movie. Jim Cummings, thank you, Arthur. Uh, again, no no shade to Jim Cummings, although I think it's very funny to forget somebody's name when they put it all over their movies. Um, I like The Wolf of Snow Hollow a lot. It's a film about uh, masculinity and addiction and werewolves, uh, and I think that speaks for itself. You should go watch it if you haven't yet. I don't love it as much as I like, uh, as, as much as I do Thunder Road, uh, but I think The Wolf of Snow Hollow is playing with a lot of really interesting things. Uh, and finally, we will be looking at some select episodes from season, or, well, scenes and episodes from season two of Fleabag, uh, a show that I think is kind of on the opposite end of, of the spectrum from Stalker, but is probably more like Stalker than a lot of these other things I've just shouted out insofar as that it really is explicitly wrestling with how do you become a good person? How do you even gauge your decency as a human being, right? Uh, and how do we punish ourselves for trying to be good and punish ourselves when we fail to be the person we want to be? Uh, I think Fleabag gets at all of that stuff really well. And again, I think The Wolf of Snow Hollow does as well, but it's got, you know, genre movie considerations that it's it's busy with, um, which I think is why it'll be fun to segue from Thing to Snow Hollow to Fleabag. I think there is kind of a fun gradient there happening. So we'll be looking at these films. Of course, there would be some uh, readings on some of the uh, psychological and, and social interaction concepts we'll be talking about. Uh, but I, I think it's, again, it's always more fun to look at movies to talk about this kind of stuff to me because it allows us to talk about human behavior in a way that's a little bit more removed, right? If it's all fictional characters, it's harder to hurt people's feelings when, you know, you have to talk about uh, things that they've uh, observed in their own lives, I guess. So anyway, that's the class, a, a deeper exploration of one of the sections of the class mentioned last week. Uh, I hope you found it enjoy enjoyable. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I do find it quite enjoyable. 
And uh, that sounds like stuff I would be interested in. So I'm going to go to you now, Arthur. Tell us words about what class you're constructing, buddy. Yeah, so my course, I think, is going to be over uh, part of a literary criticism class, maybe, um, kind of shaping it in there, I think. Not 100% certain. Uh, but I think we're talking about transcendentalism. Uh, I think that would be the way I'd outline this and shape it. Uh, I want to talk a bit about some of those uh, touchstones and tenets of transcendentalism and uh, the kind of dependent independency and... Uh, anti-societal ideology, kind of some of the spiritualism there, uh, and look at that. Probably do some select readings from Thoreau, uh, also Jack London, uh, I think, because I want to set up the discussion and watch of Into the Wild um, would be the kind of the first text I think I'd go to there in addition to those readings to look at the impact and how that mindset may have influenced some people uh, I think that's a good kind of touch point there. Uh, and from there, if you want to talk about transcendentalism in film, you got to go to the man who wrote the book about it, literally. And so I want to talk about Paul Schrader's transcendental style in film uh, and look at some of the directors he outlines there, um, which Tarkovsky is lumped in in a revised edition of that with some other directors. Uh, but the basis of that was around Ozu uh, Bresson and uh, Carl T.H. Dreyer. Uh, so I think we'd look at some stuff there uh, with Dreyer, maybe in particular, because I'm more familiar with that, um, and probably talk about uh, Joan of Arc, I think, would be a good spot to go. Um, Vampire, maybe, as well, but I think Joan of Arc's the, the one you want to probably run with in, in a class, um, in this kind of overview thing. And so I, I just want to use that to kind of outline the transcendental style in film, what that looks like, and how uh, Tarkovsky sits in there. Uh, and then from there... Uh, I'm probably going to end this course with Schrader, and I want to talk about First Reformed and, and look at that as well, uh, kind of in conjunction with uh, Stalker. Mm. Sounds good to me, man. Yeah, Arthur, I got to say, that's a, a Stalker and First Reformed is a pairing that hadn't occurred to me. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of really interesting overlap between the two thematically. There you go. All right. Thank you very much. So uh, let me talk a little bit about my class, and I don't know what I would call it. Um, it, it in some senses, pairs with what Arthur is doing. Arthur is again a transcendental transcendental film style, the uh, sort of ur text by Paul Schrader, which is a great sort of exposition of the works of Yajiro Ozu, uh, the Japanese filmmaker uh, Robert Bresson, who is uh, on a list of people that uh, Tarkovsky seeks only to impress. Uh, he's, at one point, he's asked about Stalker, and Stalker not doing very well. He says, there's only two people I want to impress with my movie. One of them's named Brisson, the other one's named Bergman, uh, which is very, very funny. <laughs> and then, of course, he's already name-dropped Carl Theodore Dreyer uh, of Vampire and uh, Passion of Joan and Arc fame. And so that, that uh, rather than a stylistic uh, sort of turn, I've got more of a thematic turn. And so there is a little bit of overlap, but we're thinking, I, I, I'm thinking more about the ways in which uh, cinematic fantasies are constructed that uh, help us to wrestle with spiritual issues, right? Spiritual mm -hmm. questions, spiritual uh, searchings. And uh, not, again, not like preaching movies who've got like a theological theme. I'm not thinking like, you know, a, I don't know, you know, some kind of biography of Martin Luther or something like that. Uh, but rather those movies that just sort of, uh, become for us meditations, on-screen meditations, 
uh, that uh, force us to navigate and negotiate some of our own issues and also stay with us when we leave the film and help us to think about other ways uh, we can live our lives that are more satisfying and meaningful and uh, generous and loving. Uh, that's what I'm thinking about. And, uh, you know, what it means to be a human being, how to better be a human being, uh, c contact with the divine, all of that. So that's what I'm thinking about. So I I'm calling it uh, Spiritual Fantasias in Cinema is the name of the class. And uh, it's, it's a long class, and Stalker would be one part of it. And with Stalker, I think I would talk about just the gnarly labyrinthine kind of journey of it. I would talk a lot about the practice of walking labyrinths in uh, spiritual traditions and uh, the idea of you can't always go the same way you went before and the role of intuition in living a life in which you're trying to uh, figure out the right things to do and how best to live. Uh, I think that's where that would begin. Uh, I would then go ahead and double up on Tarkovsky and get it over with. I'd probably go ahead and have him watch Solaris, uh, which is a movie more about identity and about repentance and sin in weird ways. There's a, there's a, uh, uh, a tableau recreation of uh, uh, Rembrandt's uh, Return of the Prodigal Son at the end of the film uh, that sort of frames uh, what happens in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's kind of interesting and surprising. Uh, there, so I just want to throw that out there as a, a possible, you know, way to think about Solaris. And then we got to talk about the Messiahs, you know, because you know you need your own personal Jesus, someone who loves you, someone who cares. And uh, the way that we're gonna have to do that is by watching The Matrix, all three movies, uh, mm. and then also uh, by watching Last Temptation of Christ, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Willem Dafoe and Harvey Keitel as. South Jersey uh, Judas, which is about my favorite thing ever. Jesus, did we leave everything to fully you? It's, it's really, really funny. Uh, but it's also a very interesting movie and an excellent set of thematics about reluctant messiahs, uh, reluctance, and also uh, about uh, doing uh, what, what ought to be done or what needs to be done in the face of conflict how one goes about doing uh, that kind of stuff. And also some pretty interesting Buddhist meditations on on just being and nothing and uh, the monkey mind and also uh, the relationship with reality, I think, is, is pretty interesting. Moving on from there, we'll get all, all real uh, East Asian. And a uh, tongue we Esther calls Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives. Shocking no one that it makes my list here. Uh, it yeah. very well could have been the movie we watched instead of Stalker today. I... And yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I was really thinking that was what you were going to pick. And so, it yeah, was, I, it was a very, very close decision. I also would not have uh, been was. surprised. Oh, sorry, Dustin. I was just going to say I was also not have been surprised to see a Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Uh, same filmmaker, I think, right? Or is that uh, uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams? That, that's Werner Herzog. That's Werner Herzog. I'm thinking a uh, Dream of the Serpent uh, is what I'm thinking of, or something. That's something Embrace like that. of the Serpent. Embrace of the Serpent. Thank you. Maybe. Uh, and that's I'll a different director, also, but I can't I'll remember have, who. I'll have to do some research, but there's another one that I think is uh, either from that same filmmaker, but I uh, know you love Uncle Boomy. Yeah, another one I need to catch up with. Uncle Boomy is great. Uh, I really, really enjoy it. Uh, and it is, a, it is a slow cinema kind of experience in the same way that Stalker is. I think uh, it does a similar uh, pacing methodology to uh, create that meditative experience. And again, it's just thinking about one's life and in this case, one's past lives as well and uh, who one wants to be. Uh, and uh, it, it's a powerful, moving 
uh, film in a lot of ways. And so I, I, I recommend it highly anyway, but I think it'd be really great for this class. Uh, then we move into something of a, a bit more blockbuster territory. We've already been there with The Matrix, but the last two selections are there. We watched Life of Pi. Arthur's already talked about the role of story and fantasy and spirituality and trauma. Uh, we can talk about those kind of things. And touching back on trauma and uh, the absence slash presence of God, uh, we can look at uh, the film Gravity. And then lastly, coming back to uh, the classical sense of transcendental filmmaking and something within a particular religious tradition, Carl Theodore Driver's The Passage, uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc that Arthur already mentioned for his syllabus, and thinking about that close-up. And I guess the fantasy of the hagiography uh, in which you create a different – picture of a saint than really does exist again uh, a, a secondary pick could have been andre rublev by tarkovsky but they've already watched one three hour movie so um in my <laughs> mercy this would be the decision i would make and not do andre rublev uh, who's a icon painter uh in that case uh, as opposed to a martyr but i think the idea of martyrdom as well is pretty fascinating and uh stylistically uh what's going on with that on the nose for what I'd want to do with the class. So there you go, dear listener. Um, if you want your Dustin's Guide to Spirituality, you just got it in cinema uh, right there. Um, those are the movies that move me. So uh, there you go. Those are our thoughts, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. I guess now it would appear to me that it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you want. You want to get down to business, what I call it business time. Ooh. Um, <laughs> business. <laughs> you, get your, uh, you got your socks on? I All do right. have business socks on. I, I took out the recycling. I've already brushed my teeth, you know. You don't have I, your I weekly after-work uh, sports practice? It's not Wednesday, but, you know, nobody cares about football this year anyway, so there's nothing good on TV. <laughs> I'm just saying. I just have uh, this bag of metal nuts and several strips of fabric. I don't need to know what you call it, Dalton. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's pretty kinky. Um, so, um, Stalker, I, I don't even know how to – I don't know how much I want to lead this discussion or I want to let you guys lead this discussion because there's a lot I want to talk about. But uh, I have seen this movie like seven times. What made so... you choose this over Uncle Boon Me? I think it's a little more watchable, uh, for one thing. Uh, I mean, you know, Uncle Boomy's very well recognized as a Palm d'Or winner, and, and uh, so it's, it's it's also quite watchable. But I think it is uh, a little bit more accessible. Boomy's doing the same kind of thing about uh, what the Celtics call the uh, the chasing of the wild goose, uh, which is the uh, sort of the spiritual pursuit. Uh, but it's doing that in a very uh, specific uh, Buddhist kind of idiom that I think is a little distance from us. And this is doing something more in a Western Christian kind of idiom. And I think that's more accessible, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and it's a full-out science fiction film. Uh, it's a genre film that has been elevated. And that's another sort of part of Dustin's wheelhouse of movies he likes is he likes movies that are actually straight genre movies, but they've done something else yeah. uh, in addition to it. And uh, so when you, when you make it an avant-garde genre movie, then I'm in. And uh, that's what I think Stalker is. Well, cool. Well, to that point, Dustin, uh, I, I think maybe a good place to start is form. You know, Arthur's already kind of teased mm -hmm. out um, 
some of the transcendental filmmaking flourishes uh, in Stalker. Um, I guess maybe that's as good a place as any for us to start, because if we go into the themes immediately, we're going to get lost in the zone right away, uh, because it will, as you said, turn into a, a wild goose chase where we're just uh, you know running around each other's own philosophical tales. So I think maybe form is going to be a, a good place for us to start. Well, I, I think your sense of wild goose chase is very accurate. I want to be clear, though. The Celtic sense of the wild goose chase is the spiritual pursuit. This is how you chase the Holy Ghost. It's like chasing a wild goose. And the idea is that eventually you do catch it. But that's a whole different uh, animal. It's a, now, it's, that's it's, interesting. It's, <laughs> yeah. Whole different animal. I would have expected the metaphor. You're right. Obviously, an animal that can be caught with one's hands. I just just kind of assume, uh, you know, it, it, the in the Celtic tradition, it would be more of a, a deliberate uncatchability. So thank you for clarifying that. Uh, but yes, uh, style, uh, Arthur, you were going to say something, weren't you? Well, I think Dalton really picked up already in his, his review about the, the main kind of tenet of this film's style, which is that, that, uh, long take, right? That, that use of the long take plus the depth of field, both of which are techniques typically used, uh, in realism and realist cinema, uh, to kind of establish this, you know, experience as though you're there in the moment um you know something like Renoir would have used and so I, I think you know to use that in this more surreal setting is a very fascinating approach uh, but also it lends itself you know I, I i talked about this film calling it you know dull or boring and, and you know it can still be engaging which is what you know dalton picked up on um but this is a film where for about an hour and a half nothing happens i mean they mm. outside of them getting into the zone. I mean, it's mostly about an hour or so of them just walking through these fields, right? And having kind of non-sequitur discussions about, uh, you know, their beliefs or their kind of relationship to one another or why they're there, essentially, which is mostly just boils down to, I want to go to this room, take me to this room. And the stalker's like, nah, I don't know that's the way to go. And so you know, those discussions kind of underlie this really long, long uh, journey through this film. Uh, and I think it's important to use those long takes and, and that kind of depth of field uh, to draw the viewer in, to Dalton's point, to make it a, a much more palatable experience. Because I think if you're using a quicker cut or a lot of close-up or insert technique here, um, it wouldn't have had the same impact but to really let it sit and resonate, I think, adds uh, quite a bit to the emotional impact uh, and the the effect that uh, Tarkovsky is wanting to have. Right. It's, it's interesting, Arthur. I, I was thinking about, um, and I didn't fact check this too hard. Uh, so, you know, uh, if, if somebody's heard otherwise, feel free to jump in and correct me. But I did see something to the effect of uh, just, just that Tarkovsky had been kind of a aware of the English connotation of the word stalker when he chose that as the title for the film. Um, and I, again, I didn't check what, you know, veracity there is to that, but if it is, there is truth to it. It does kind of make the, the slow push-ins that we get even more interesting to me, uh, because there is this very voyeuristic feel to those long takes. And Arthur, you kind of, you know, you referenced, uh, realism, uh, within, you know, realism as a style, uh, within film, but also, you know, I, I think of documentary too, as another, uh, form uh, where we get a lot of long takes and we often do spend time, you know, with a, a director of photography deciding to make something a close up, right? And then so we get a super duper slow push in. So I, I think those 
moments of, you know, it, it is a, a long shot without a lot of camera movement, which can sound like, you know, something that's kind of static and boring to look at. But I think, as you said, the depth of field that this film uses, there's so, there's so much going on within the, lit, the, the lens work, which, I, you know, you see a little bit of within film, but I don't think it's ever this showy which again i think the film is restrained in a lot of ways but i would say that those push-ins border on showy in a way that i really appreciate because it isn't often you, you see them used quite this way I, I i agree for sure and uh and I, i'm glad we spoke to those uh particular uh cinema uh issues around cinematography but i think uh, also the mise-en-scene just what's on screen there you know tarkovsky also functioned as the uh art director for the film yeah i saw that in the opening credits what a weird choice like what a hard job to give yourself yeah well he's i think a bit of a tyrant uh i'm not sure andre was exactly a nice person uh to work with but that's i don't know i don't know but there there are conflicting stories on either side but i'm not sure he was very pleasant Mm. uh and so do it yourself is always easier sometimes for those kinds of people uh, but that being said, there, there's a couple things I just want to observe uh, about that. First of all, we got to talk about uh, style in terms of the use of monochrome, which has uh, been sort of tinted into that sepia tone uh, bit there, and then the full color of the zone, although it mixes in a weird way at the end. But it does give us a real strong, uh, I think on purpose, uh, bit of a remembrance of The Wizard of Oz. I think that's what we've got to be thinking. Yeah, definitely. So deliberate. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, that that's the first thing. And again, uh, the drabness and the, and the dullness of that life, you know, on the outside. And it's weird that it's not prettier inside the zone. The zone really is kind of the wasteland. It's just the wasteland of Technicolor as opposed to a wasteland in monochrome. Uh, outside it, it so that's a really really interesting again stylistic choice uh the ways in which uh the the movie uses these sort of uh, decayed railroad rail yards that are that have been abandoned uh uses uh these old uh, abandoned army tanks uh there's a body inside of a car in one of those push-throughs uh that goes a long time to finally uh, refocus on our stalker character hmm. And uh, and then there's another moment uh, once they're inside the sort of major building in which the room is located, where we see for a long time uh, the body of what appears to be a woman. Uh, no story, no context, yeah. nothing like that. Uh, but uh, again, those dir- art direction kind of choices. And then the last thing I want to mention, just in terms of that, are the long sort of tracking shots. I guess there would be what you call an upside down tracking shot where the camera's pointed directly down at the ground, but in this case, the ground is water. And then it tracks along whatever that stream of water happens to be for some time. There's a couple of those, and those uh, uh, streams or bits of water are full of this various detritus. I'm uh, so glad, Dustin, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Yeah, I was going to make sure we talked about this if somebody didn't bring it up, so I'm so glad you're talking about it, because it is a moment in the film where it does feel like Tarkovsky has 20-20 eyes, man where you're just seeing like plastic bottles floating in water that is nearly black. Uh, that just looks so putrid uh, and undrinkable. Yeah. And I, there is a major thing in the novel roadside picnic um, by the Sturminsky brothers. I'm not saying that name. Yeah. Right. Good luck. I think I'm adding a vowel with that. But anyway, uh, the, the two brothers who wrote the uh, roadside picnic, um, one of the things that stalkers do is they like steal contraband from the zone 
and one of the major sources of contraband is this hell slime is what they call it that comes from the zone and i think some of that is a nod to that in the film whatever the sort of strange supernatural property stuff is uh, that's there, but I think the actual content of the stuff is kind of interesting because we oftentimes see syringes. Yeah, um, we 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 see weapons, and at one point, you know, we find out that uh, the writer has brought a pistol with him, and his weapon is added to uh, yeah. one of the pools of water later on. Uh, we do see some religious tracks only once. I think I remember a, a card of I think Saint John uh, that uh, when those uh, uh, saints cards that sometimes uh, people of an Eastern Orthodox tradition or other uh, high church tradition might put in their home. Uh, and uh, again, more of the, uh, again, just products of uh, consumption, bottles and cans and, and that kind of stuff as well. And again, those are all picked and designed. Uh, the water itself, you know, gets a particular kind of texture with its greasiness. Yeah, uh, Baby Rose uh, ate popcorn and watched a lot of this movie today, which is kind of surprising, uh, or yesterday uh, when I watched it. And uh, she kept saying, that water dirty, Daddy, uh, <laughs> which is about the funniest thing of all time. Um, and so all of those choices and just the sets themselves all lend ourselves to this sort of, again, post-apocalyptic kind of wasteland. And this is pre-Chernobyl. This movie comes out like seven years before Chernobyl happens. Yeah, it's wild. There was uh, a nuclear disaster in in 57 uh, within the USSR that's worth mentioning. But the the big one, yeah, had yet to happen. And so, yeah, that's kind of a wild thing there. But um, all of that sort of formal stuff there also creates this idea of a, a way of which of finding things that is somehow older and abandoned. I mean, that's what it all achieves, right? Like this world is set in time, frozen in time for the 13 years before whenever the meteorite, which turns out not to really be a meteorite, struck uh, to right now. So it somehow is locked in the past, but it is also uh, demonstrating, you know, it's, it's full of the detritus of what has caused the, uh, the sepia-tone monochrome world on the outside brimming with life, but also decayed and forgotten. Mm. And uh, so, again, just mise-en-scene-wise, it begins to communicate some of those big thematics in a way that I, I find really fascinating. Well, and now's a good time to mention, uh, just as we're kind of talking about the, the detritus of the world outside the zone creeping in. There is an like explicitly kind of post-apocalyptic thing going on in this film. And I say that in sort of the way in which, you know, Children of Men or the first Mad Max film are post-apocalyptic. Like, society is, is, is on its last leg, but there is some semblance of organization um, and community and, you know, uh, you know, there's universities and, and police forces still, right? But there is definitely yeah. a, a great terror across the land of some sort. Right, I was agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I just think it's good to bring it up because I'm glad you, yeah. we, we we're now talking about it because I don't think we've discussed it yet. But I think it is so the the bleakness of the world outside the zone becomes so integral to the conversations about the zone and and the, the room of of secret pleasures. It's you know it's the compass from uh, from the pirates movies, but it's a room and it just gives you the thing. You don't got to find it. Uh, right. And as yeah, I do think that that apocalyptic nature of the film, you know, again. It, it slots in so well with that transcendental vibe uh, because, you know, th- that transcendental filmmaking style kind of allows you to have these apocalyptic considerations, but make them less 
thrilling and more meditative in a way that's just so interesting. But again, yeah, that that bleakness really does become sort of, I don't know, I, I think the film never feels like it's tipping all the way over in, into anything nihilistic, I, far from it uh, at times. But I, there is just something deeply sad about everything that happens <laughs> within the frame and, and coming out of everyone's mouth. Well, I think there's a there's a spiritual tradition in which, uh, you know, the sort of uh, speaking to the times, but not speaking to the times from the moment of time where, like, maybe the cataclysm's coming, the meteorite's going to hit. That's, that, that doesn't really uh, awaken an audience to uh, pay attention to uh, their own practice as human beings to live truly humanly with themselves, their, their others, and with the world. And uh, a way that that is done in the, in the Jewish tradition is called the exilic tradition, in which you, do, you place a lot of the narrative after the big bad has come after everything is lost mm. and it is in that moment of sort of grief and reflection that uh people begin to uh have their imaginations uh reignited to hope for and imagine a different kind of future and i do think that that is a, where a lot of those uh uh post-apocalyptic style spiritual films again children of men's a good example the mad max films are good examples uh, of doing that where we say okay this is how bad it could be right and let's think our way into that world and out so we don't think ourselves into that world at all. Mm. Well, I think that's, you know, what, what great science fiction does. And, of course, as bad as 2020 has been, it's been a great year to look at sci-fi, uh, both when it's, you know, deeply um, melancholic or, uh, you know, misanthropic and when it's uplifting and humanistic. Uh, because, you know, when you see how rough the world can get, it, it is helpful to look at different times in history and, and see how people explored these ideas for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I want to spend any more time talking about this. If you guys do, that's great. I just want to mention the idea that you can't go in the same way that uh, the place is full of traps that you can't, uh, you can't just make a decision ahead of time as to how you're going to proceed to get to the room. Uh, you've got to sort of play it intuitively and always being to, uh, willing to check your bearings. I think it's an interesting spiritual practice. You yeah, know, some interesting um, mindfulness stuff. Yeah, Pursuit of the divine. I don't yeah. know if there's anything more that I want to say than that other than, by the way, it's gnarly if you actually play it. And when you make it into hard and fast stock rules, that's when you die or you cause others around you to die. Huh. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, no, go yeah. off. I, I love that. Yeah. It worked one way one time. Was always ever do that? That's terrible, right? You know, that's that's a bad idea uh, well, to do that. Now that's to say, not not to say there aren't practices, not that there aren't behaviors. Again, the tradition of tying up the nuts and the and the things it works, right? And so mm -hmm. that's a tradition that's passed down. So it does both things. It's like, okay, here are the ways that we've handled this stuff. This is the way me and Porcupine have been doing this for years, coming in and coming out of this place, right? And mm -hmm. so they, they have built up themselves for themselves a, a spiritual tradition, right, uh, which is helpful. But the actual practice of the – today's the day I'm in the zone trying to get to the building. When that's the case, I, I use the traditions to help me improvise my way. Well, and it, it's an interesting third-way kind of approach to that. Buddy, I'm glad you're talking about this because it does brush up right against something I do want to talk more about. So uh, I guess I'll just kind of throw out what I, I find 
some stuff that I was thinking about that feels connected to, to this, and then, then we can kind of see where we're at. But yeah, the, this discussion of uh, spirituality, obviously we haven't really talked at all about uh, how religiosity or faith enter the film, you know, explicitly like in the dialogue and in the actions of the story, but the, these kind of subtle ways in which they're in the film are, are very interesting. As you've talked about, you know, this, this kind of th discussions of, you know, paths taken and, and, and knowability versus unknowability. Uh, but some specific, just like historical and contextual stuff. <laughs> uh oh, child's being a naughty boy. Some, some historical and contextual stuff I do want to bring up, right? We're talking about uh, a film from a nation that at this time is explicitly uh, a religious Right. Uh, if not, uh, you know, I, I know that there's different policies at different times in the USR's, USSR's history, so I don't want to go as far as to say is explicitly atheist. Uh, but uh, again, a, a, a state without uh, a church, uh, but also a, a country and a people with a pretty long religious tradition, as you mentioned, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy having its ties to, to high churchiness um, and, you know, going all the way back to uh, – the, the role of the church in Western Europe during the, the fall of the Roman Empire in, in the Middle Ages. Uh, I, and I only bring up that time period because of, you know, kind of these apocalyptic considerations we were talking about earlier, right? And the, the tradition, story traditions, looking at how bad things can get. Um, I, I did do some research. The writer references this character, the wandering Jew, which I wasn't familiar with. Um, so I did some research and it's uh, oh, like a third... Uh, yeah, some well different uh, in different versions of the myth say different people, but yeah, um, and different transgressions. But yeah, it's this 13th century folklore uh, that entered into Europe, uh, you know, again during the Middle Ages or so, when uh, anti-Semitism was just through the roof up in that place. Uh, but uh, yeah, this idea of this character that mocked Christ uh, during the crucifixion is now doomed to wander the earth until the second coming. Uh, so again, I just kind of wanted to throw out some of that, those, those specific touchstones and, and references, because I, I do think, Dustin, what you were talking about, this, this sort of non-religious uh, spiritual exploration going on within Stalker does still make time to specifically address the, the traditions of, of Europe and, and Russia uh, as, as it exists kind of both as part of and separately from Europe. Um, I just think it's really interesting, and I don't know that I have a whole lot to add either. I just there, There's so much there there that I'm not even sure what to do with what first, I guess. Well, I, you know... Well, it does, I, go ahead, Arthur. Well, I was going to say, I, I'd done some reading. I, I'd read the article uh, that went in the Criterion edition of this, which is on Criterion.com, uh, and, and the author of that, essay references how uh, Tarkovsky had set out to make a more spiritual movie after the mirror. Um, and he was able to find a way to do it veiled here because I, I, I assume it was illegal to, to do a movie about religion and spirit Christianity essentially uh, in, in this period in the Soviet union. Um, from what I could gather through context that, you know, I could be wrong. Um, so I, I think yeah, heavy censorship was something to avoid at that point. Yeah. Yeah, so I I think Dalton, your your readings are all. I mean, I think this is a highly spiritual movie, um, and it just has to be super veiled so he couldn't you know get it past the the government. Um, and I I think that's fascinating. You know, something we don't really ever get into. But you know, most of the movies that we have talked about that do have that kind of spiritual uh, foundation in them are usually American or at least you know British or something. And so there's not that fear of of censorship. Uh, so to see something from a a different era and different country where where that is a, a big prohibition on on the filmmaking I, th I think it's just fascinating you know kind of discussion point anyway 
Well, well, it becomes really interesting when you start to think about like the history of, especially in the 20th century, the history of Christianity and socialism within Russia, right? Because you've got Tolstoy uh, writing about peasant socialism and how um, all these dumb academics need to get off their high horse and come talk to the the Christian farmers who are you know better comrades than they'll ever be, right? So this all that stuff's going on in the early uh, 1900s uh, in, in Russia, and then again, you have you know 70, 80 years of Soviet history to get to stalker and and it is so interesting like all of the explicit you know there's a crown of uh, the writer puts on a crown of thorns <laughs> right like mm-hmm. there's a lot of explicitly christian shit in this movie uh and again when the stalker gets home and he is so depressed about the writer and the professor's lack of of faith in humanity um, and the he's just kind of he, he talks to his wife about you know look at what's come of, become of the so-called intelligentsia right this is the same conversations that people are having in pre-Soviet Russia yeah and I just I just find it fascinating that Tarkovsky is wrestling with these same considerations that you have this country that has a a robust and and I would say a a better than the American perspective uh, understanding of truth and the malleability thereof right you're t- you're talking about a country that's better at spy games than probably anybody else on the planet. Um, and because of that, they understand that history and truth are uh, strange bedfellows. Uh, so it just becomes very interesting that Tarkovsky is, is struggling and wrestling with the, the same issues that have kind of plagued uh, Russian thought for you know a century at, almost at the point that you know Stalker's being made. And it's interesting to me that what he ends up coming to as a conclusion is sort of a third way. Rather than uh, something uh, sort of counter-revolutionary, regressive, where he says we need to all come back to our roots in the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, even though he's made a movie about an Eastern Orthodox icon painter, Andrei Rublev is a great movie. I'm just saying uh, you definitely ought to check that out. He doesn't suggest that that return is necessary, but he doesn't also simply just suggest to uh, acknowledge the spiritual and sort of reject you know, the, the, the sort of uh, – uh, what's the word I want to say here? Uh, the dry materialism of uh, Soviet or socialist philosophy. He wants to embrace a spiritual philosophy that at the same time recognizes some value in that which has come behind, but also something that's very much applicable to contemporary moments, uh, circumstances, and situations. And uh, the way he negotiates that sort of third way in the middle about saying, okay, there's something pre-Soviet that's not bad, but let's not just go hard in the paint for that just because it wasn't all bad, right? And there is something that's going on right now in the world of contemporary spirituality that's good, but let's not just go all through that too. Let's 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 just temper both the tradition and the sort of individualistic, situationalist, personalized, customized, and find ourselves some sort of route in the middle uh, uh. toward – yeah, no, that's what I not not a middle. Middle's the wrong word for it, but it is mm. a it's a third way kind a of synthesis. Yeah, synthesis. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's dialectical, right? Uh, well, don't don't worry, uh, Dustin or Andre Tarkovsky, because after the fall of the wall, uh, the national prayer breakfast will find its way to the Russian Federation. <laughs> Have no uh, fear. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah, boy, howdy, evangelicals sure sure did uh, get into Russia while the the iron was hot for striking. Yeah, that's yeah, sad. <laughs> I, I don't hey, know how. I, yeah, yeah, you're not going to get the argument from me there because of, and again, it, it is because of how theologically dense this film is, without being too, as Arthur said, it is having to hide a lot of its its theological and spiritual concerns, kind of in the minutia, uh, and, and I think it does so very, very strikingly. 
So I'm going to go ahead and give one of my theological sort of conceits of reading the movie is um, God lives in the room. Yes. Yeah. 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 It is it, the Ark it, of the it Covenant. The, yeah. It's the unknowability of, of your own heart. It's uh, right. conscience. I think the writer says something to the effect of soul searching is uh, is an invention of the mind, right? And so the room is the mind detached from the self, which is you know mm -hmm. they they even make some comment about like well if there is a god it's the Bermuda Triangle, right? It exists. I mean I think the writer explicitly says something to that effect right. early in the film that uh, is again I, I think spot on with your reading there, Dustin. That uh, the room is is God or something God like, if not you know. Uh, capital Y Yahweh. Right? It gives you the desire right. of your heart. Yeah, and yeah, you might well, not yeah, like. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess that's kind of what I was teasing at Arthur. So maybe now is a good time, Dustin. Is yeah, it gives you the desire of your heart, but it, it's going to let you know your heart better than you've ever known it. And you might not want that as bad as you think you do. Yeah. It was well, the knowledge of good and evil is what that fundamentally becomes. Uh, I just before yeah. we get there though, before we get there. Uh, I just want to mention, God makes it rain indoors. I don't, I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to say about that. But that's wild. And Tarkovsky likes to make it rain inside. Well, because it looks cool. With... It looks super cool. And you know what else looks super cool? When the ground breathes. Ooh. Yes, that warbly, <laughs> like uh, whatever swampy water with the foam on top yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I was so I, I kept, I had to watch that scene twice because I was like dog or did the filmmakers just like find some weird thing to do with the film print uh because man it was just ah, this film is cool just full of uh weird visuals man that uh, right. again whether it's rain indoors or uh you know a, a christian uh or an ethan Orth orthodox icon next to an old assault rifle like it's just full of this kind of uh, dreamy imagery that again all is evocative of the idea of the room in some capacity yeah. so yeah let's talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that the encounter with god if you're unprepared and it gives you what you desire you're going to find out that you're not a very good person uh i mean this is the one moment where um a film that has ever been about human depravity that preaches an idea of depravity does so in a way that is not off-putting to me because yeah. uh, oftentimes mm. when it's like people suck and here's how bad everybody sucks, you bunch of dirtbags, you suck. I I've seen lots of that movie. Oh, Dustin, and... are you talking about are you talking about next week's film right now? I could be because <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This film does something that many many films before and since have tried to do, which is. I mean, Solo, right? Uh, is right around, you know, right around, but is mm. contemporary enough? Was Within a decade of this film, um, come and see uh, another film about human depravity. Uh, both films that I'll probably, uh, I'm, I'm more likely to get around to come and see. But yeah, there's tons of films about the the depths of human hatred and, and ugliness, and this film manages to do it in a way that is, you know, PG, frankly, but also like psychically terrifying. Yes, yeah, so, I mean that's the thing is that it doesn't like uh, it doesn't pussyfoot around the idea that this is terrible. And something that's utterly destructive and uh, uh, something w with which we should recoil in horror. It, it does not draw back from that, but it does not sort of like gleefully, uh, uh, you know, wallow in its um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it doesn't become sadistic. Transgression. Transgression, transgression. yeah. Ooh, good yeah. work, too. Yeah, but it, it, it through that lack of – 
I think transgressive or transgression is definitely a good word for it because I think he, the film finds kind of the, the Frank Herbert's Dune way to go about it, right? Any would-be messiah is probably a Fuhrer in disguise. Um, again, to, to borrow some of the great dialogue from this film because there are so many wonderful lines. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think the film knows that like it, any level of like overt grossness in this film that is so kind of dank and sad is just, it's going to be off-putting. It's not going to help yeah. the film. It's just going to make people uncomfortable and so what it does is it just sort of it places it on the uh the viewer right the audience it places it on the audience so if you were in the room what would you have gotten and if you don't like what you would have gotten what you know again the the way in which the movie stays with you when you leave is like well what do i need to do about my own my own soul my own mind my own self that if i were in that room what i would truly want would be something that I'd be proud of having wanted, right? I don't know. I find myself in the same camp as the writer, the stalker, and the professor of, you know what? I don't need to go in. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go back home now uh, because I don't I'm, – I'm with the writer, man. I think uh, the human self is unknowable, and anytime somebody thinks they've got themselves figured out, that's somebody to steer clear of. Um, uh, the older I get, the more I don't agree with Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I appreciate a room full of uncertain people because people who have too much certainty, uh, you know, can often be a little uh, unpleasant to be around. A lot of ego. Well, yeah, and I, I guess that's what I was – go ahead, Arthur. No, I was just saying it's a lot of ego, to Dalton's point. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's the thing that would happen, you know, and I think the experience of the the journey to the room for the writer and the professor, what it does for them – is it puts them in a place of humility where they're like, I don't want to know, right? And that's the first step. And even if you work really hard at it, because the stalker doesn't want to go there either. You know, you could almost think of this, you know, we talk about him being one of God's holy fools um, uh, oftentimes in the film, but you could think of uh, something uh, clergy, you know, uh, uh, something of of a merchant and something of an academic. Uh, of the different characters and I, again the writer is although an intellectual is uh in the uh capitalist class right um the money earning class and then the uh the professor again is as part of the industrial complex and uh, again something of an inventor of the technologies of the world and the stalker is a spiritual seeker and they all three you know maybe in different ways in different places come to that conclusion. And I think what the movie then does for the challenge is if you work on yourself in such a way that you would want your desire to be a good thing, at least something you wouldn't be ashamed of, you'd hang yourself for like Porcupine does when he comes to realize he didn't really care if his brother's alive or dead, um, to find that sort of deep, dark secret about yourself. If you get yourself to that place, then you're not going to want to be in there anyway. Mm. Because either you're selfless enough that you don't want something for yourself or secondly uh you have enough humility about your own self that you're like i just don't know what i would do and i don't i don't want the world to find that out right not for my sake or my shame's sake but because i might wreak some sort of havoc on somebody else well this does seem like it might be a good time for us to get to the end of the movie because i mean i think there is some uh there is some selfishness to the stalker right like the film opens with him potentially abandoning his his wife and child again for the 10 years years in prison yeah yeah exactly uh he we we get uh through dialogue uh the sense that he's done at least one stint in prison prior if not a couple um 
and you know he says the writer accuses him you're you are a louse on people's unhappiness uh you you don't want anything other than people's money and and the stalker like it's the moment where he breaks down right it's like the saddest he could be is somebody accusing him of wanting profit out of this because this Mm -hmm. is the only place where he feels happy is as you said he's a spiritual seeker insofar as that he he's a sherpa to people who are seeking because he knows what it's like to have no hope no happiness um, but that, that desire to help other people makes him neglectful of the people who, uh, are relying on him more than anyone. And it is, you know, it does, you know, uh, we, we don't need to get into the minutia of, uh, uh, the rules of clergy. Uh, but that's why I brought up Fleabag season two, right? Is the, the hot priest and what an interesting character, uh, he is, um, and the idea of self-sacrifice and family sacrifice in the pursuit of guiding others, I think is something very interesting. Uh, and, and something that I was very curious about where the last five to eight minutes of the film would would uh, find us. Uh, yeah, so there is that. Um, so the color comes back at times. Yep. Yeah, I got that far. I got back scenes. to you. Oh, sorry. I will jump oh, in wait. real quick just as Dustin's laying this out for you, listener. As Dustin said, yeah, the color comes back, and I got there, but we get back to sepia by the time we get back to the stalker's home yeah right until you go back to color at the very last scene mm, okay which is with the daughter monkey uh yeah. which is in full gene color. gray uh gene gray correct uh and i I'll, dalton I, again i'll spoil this for you she is she's reading a bit of love poetry by uh some famous russian poet and i forget his name it's dostoyevsky yeah i did read about the end of the film i just didn't watch it myself so yeah it's it's i think it's dostoyevsky and she she does some telekinesis right and she slides. I mean, it's 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 the most subtle. It's astonishing filmmaking, really. As she just subtly slides three glasses across the table, uh, while a train is coming by, and uh, sort of making the house shake, and that's in full uh, living color there. And uh, I I think sometimes what 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 the what the what the film stock choices might help us see in this film is that for the. Uh, for the stalker, because his vocation is to help people in the search, the only place his life will be in that full living color is when he's aiding someone else in the search. That's just that is one of the uh, uh, recompenses of that particular vocation, that particular kind of calling, is that the only place you're going to really find your soul singing is when you're guiding somebody else, and when you're not, it is going to be. It's going to be less colored. It's going to be uh, drained, evaporated, desaturated of that color uh, there. And then the you know for the wife's experience there, there she experiences and, and, and articulates some joy and some happiness. But I find that that second generation again, this is sort of mutation and overexposure to the zone is sort of the sci-fi explanation for all of this. But um, that something is coming into his home, right? there is a way in which he is bringing the zone home with him and some of the relationships around him. Yeah. And I think there's something fascinating there that, that within his daughter, he has brought the zone home. And, uh, that's an interesting conclusion. Yeah. It, it both kind of, I don't know, uh, dams and saves him, right? Like it's, it's doing both a, mm-hmm your mistakes will be visited upon your children, but it is also doing something with, uh, it's always seems like it's going to be bleaker for the next generation. And they always manage to be better and brighter than the previous generation. Uh, I don't know. There's something interesting there. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, again, much like the rest of Stalker, it is kind of uh, un deliberately unknowable. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, its obtuseness is uh, infuriating. I think it's safe to say. Well, and I uh, think. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to talk about the roles. You know, uh, do we want to talk about the sort of uh, role playing game that is this movie? We got we got writers, we got professors, we got stalkers, stalkers of the seekers, we got writers who are uh, again pursuing their own grandiose dreams, and then we've got the professor who I think is interestingly there to Nagasaki the place with a, uh, and I say that intentionally because the uh, the mega tonnage of the nuclear device he's carrying is exactly that of the Nagasaki bomb. Um, to blow up the room. I, what do we think of the various sort of roles there in the zone? Hmm. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And I, I'm glad you brought it back to that because I was actually just about to reference um, when I mentioned the unknowability of Stalker, I was going to reference the writer's monologue that definitely seems to be Tarkovsky speaking directly to audience because the writer does make direct eye contact with the camera mm -hmm. more than a couple of times in that monologue. And it is about how whatever art you give people, they will consume it voraciously. Uh, even if you're giving them, you know, much to the Holy Mountains point, you're giving them a big old fat turd from right in the, the darkest part of your soul. Um, mm -hmm. People like stories, uh, regardless of what they say about the human condition. Um, and, and that's a frustrating place to be at. Uh, so I, I do think the writer kind of exists as this middle ground, right? The professor is there to blow up God and realizes that's maybe not the right call. Uh, the stalker is uninvested in the outcome, is all about the journey, uh, and the writer is, uh, I, I don't know, similar, I don't know, maybe that's where I'm having, maybe maybe you guys can chop this up a little bit better for me, because I, I feel like the writer and, and the stalker are kind of unconcerned with outcome, but for different reasons and in different ways, if that makes sense. I don't know that the writer's unconcerned with the outcome. I think the writer wants what he wants and then decides he's not going to get what he wants and doesn't really know what he wants and wants to, you know, no, you don't want to sell me death six. I'm going to go home and think about my life. Uh, <laughs> that's, I, that seems to be the writer's reaction to the journey there. That's a very um, good point. I am conflating with, uh, conflating where he ends uh, with the rest of the character. And you're right, until he goes on that journey, it is very much an ego trip. It is about experiencing the route to the room to say that he did it and to get the thing that might be cool. Right, and it does seem to be like uh, a spiritual set of practices that are for self-gain and self-aggrandizement. Again, to come back to that, it does look a lot like contemporary American evangelicalism. The reason why we go to church is because of all the good stuff we'll get from it, and that's not really why. Uh, yeah, I'm just like a, a hot lady, because uh, that's the yeah. whole uh, part of his, his journey to the room is he's bringing a date <laughs> that ends up bailing. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, yeah, 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 my, 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 my smoking hot wife, right, or whatever version of it that the, the preacher will say at a NASCAR prayer beforehand or whatever, uh, invocation <laughs> at a NASCAR race. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Arthur? Yeah. Uh, th that kind of thing is uh, sometimes the motivation for a spirituality, and that's not good. And then there is, uh, I, I think the professor is antagonistic. Like, it seems to me that the professor believes in it, believes it's real, believes it's powerful, uh, but also thinks it to be dangerous. And so it seems like an old school Soviet socialism almost represented there as an approach to spirituality. 
Well, and I would even go as far as to say is maybe, uh, and this is more of an American-centric lens or a Western European-centric lens, a real Irish Catholic, uh, a real Liam Neeson in the gray or Dalton on a, after a bad weekend. It's uh, God's real and he's a jerk and I want nothing to do with him. <laughs> that kind of spiritual right. seeking, right? For sure. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely getting us somewhere there. But I, I just, I, I think those different roles and different ways of reaction are, are, are just fascinating all by themselves and uh, just worth talking about. Like, there, there's a way in which, again, the RPG version of this game sort of, like, lends itself before yeah. we even get started uh, to think about these as character classes. Uh, but they're actually classes of humanity rather than, you know, clerics and wizards and warlocks or whatever. Although, clearly, clearly, uh, our stalker's a druid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, I'm dude. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the main thing I wanted to touch on there. Are there any other big major thoughts on Stalker before we wrap up? I think I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. The only note I have here, and we've kind of talked about it, is uh, just the idea that examining the truth changes the truth. But I feel like... Mm -hmm. We've kind of talked around that the the entire uh, you know business time section of the show, so I think we can go ahead and move move right along, Dustin. So let me give you the Zen Cohen version of that thing, though. Right, you're absolutely right. Examining the truth changes the truth, but also examining the truth changes you and changes the angle which you're looking at the unchanging truth, and so it looks different. And round and round we go. Zen Cohen's fun times. Did you hear him? Yeah. Oh, I okay. heard it all. I was just smiling real big. Because he was, was just unresponsive. The time. <laughs> uh, the last time Zin Cones came up on the show, it was for a war on everyone, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> I am a lineman from Wichita. Okay, moving on. Uh, I think this has been a good time and a good discussion. Let's render this film to the shelf or to the trash. What do you say, Dalton? Go. Yeah, it's a good-ass movie. You should watch it if you haven't before. Uh, I've been telling people it's like Annihilation, but the Russian and the 70s and dudes. Uh, so if that does it for you, you should check it out. If that doesn't do it for you, well, there's also a lot else there. Check it out anyway. Yeah, check it out anyway. We've discussed for over an hour now uh, all the weird and cool and interesting stuff about it. Very cool. What do you say, Arthur? Yeah, I, I think this is easily a shelfable film. So good, good pick, Pops. Oh, thank you, thank you. So, happy birthday to me. We watching Stalker, yay. Uh, yeah, so I'm also saying um, Shelf, because I picked it because I like it. So, why would I not? That so, zone-themed birthday party was a weird choice. It is a weird choice. <laughs> You'll have to come in with nuts with the little uh, <laughs> streamers tied into it just to find the party. <laughs> I give you all maps that are different. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. That'd be great. All right. Well, there you go. That's the end of the month of Dustin or whatever we're calling this marathon. Uh, and uh, so we've got another movie, though, for next week. Arthur, what are we doing and how are we doing it? Hey, I get my shtick back. How about that? Finally, after two months, Yay! the reins have been handed back. So they were in good hands, though. It was a fun, fun couple of months. Uh, well, next month, uh, we're going to wrap up the year uh, with, a, with a marathon that we had... Uh, originally done a couple of years ago, we did a, a short marathon, I think three, two years ago. I don't know. Time is a, a circle. Uh, it's a construct. Uh, I was um, not married yet. and I was. We were at your apartment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So whatever that timeline. Jeez. Anyway, so we did part threes. How appropriate. We did part threes, chapter one. Uh, I subtitled it chapter one just for fun, uh, but it also left it open to a potential sequel, uh, as most great blockbusters do. 
And so next month we're kicking off chapter or part three's chapter two, uh, where we're going to be looking at the third entries in the film franchise. They may be a, the third part, the end concluding part, or they may just be a stop in the journey of the franchise. And we're going to kick it all off in honor of Mank, David Fincher's directorial uh, return. He's only made one movie in our entire run of this show. Uh, and wow. so, yeah, it, it's going to be fun to to get back in that frame of mind. So in honor of Mank, we're taking a look at Alien 3 or Alien Cubed, nice. depending on how you read the title. <laughs> I prefer to read it as Alien Cubed because then it makes it into a mathematical problem that it needs to be solved. So thank <laughs> makes you Makes it more interesting, that, anyway. Arthur. Uh, if you want to talk to us on social media, Dalton could say those things, but you know where they all are. It's, we're on Twitter. Find us on the Twitter. We're on Gmail. It's our name. <laughs> GoodTrashRockCast.gmail.com. We're on Patreon. That's our initials. Patreon slash GTM. Give us money if you like. Otherwise, keep watching, keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.